0: Gracious Father in heaven, how you have spoken to us in Jesus Christ with such grace and clarity. We thank you that the one who has seen Jesus has seen the Father, that you have shown us in him all you are to us. We thank you that he in turn has sent from you the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, that we may see him in his Word, to touch our consciences, that we may be convicted and convinced of the truth and power of the gospel, to touch our affections, that persuaded by that grace of God in the gospel, our hearts may run after you with love and joy, that having sorrowed for our sin, we might also rejoice in Being able to bathe in the forgiveness of all of our sins. We pray, Our Heavenly Father, as we turn again to your word tonight, that we might have some sense that you are shutting us in with yourself, that you have something to say to each of us. And we pray that as you speak to us by your word, that very word will have the power to create within us a response of faith and trust and love and joy and adoration and submission, that we may go from this place afresh, covenanted to You, with our heads held high in the world, that You have privileged us to be Your sons and Your daughters in Jesus Christ. So, O God, we pray, come to us. Help us to sense the downpress of the weight of Your glorious presence among us, that we may bow in worship and in adoration and in obedience. And this we pray together for Jesus Christ, our Savior's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now we're turning in our Bibles for the last time, certainly the last time in our series in Paul's letter to the Romans. We're turning to Romans chapter 8 and verses 31 through 39, to which we've been turning for a good number of weeks now, and we're coming eventually to the closing verses of this great chapter. And you'll find it on page 944 and 945 of the Pew Bible. Paul appears to be looking back at least on what he said in chapter 8, and in my own judgment probably on everything he said from chapter 1 verse 18 following, and he raises this great question, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. While it may have taken us about fifty years, expositions to get to these last two verses in Romans chapter 8, but certainly there could be no better text than verses 38 and 39 for the beginning of a year and for our covenant renewal service. Actually, we have spent a disproportionate amount of time on Romans chapter 8. Part of the reason is because it's a disproportionately magnificent chapter. Unless any of you think that the reason for spending all this time is so that it could be planned that verses 38 and 39 would be the text for the first Sunday night of the year, let me assure you that Sovereignly speaking, you must be absolutely right, but humanly speaking, it is purely accidental. One of the older writers has a beautiful expression about these closing verses. He says, here, the Apostle Paul descants on the gospel. You know, our choir sometimes sings what they call some of us call it as well the descant. And while we are singing somewhere here, they have gone into some top gear, and as it were, we are carrying them along as they soar, as they descant on the hymn that we are singing. That's a very beautiful way to describe precisely what the Apostle Paul is doing here. It's almost as though he breaks into song, and of course these words have very easily been turned into song by hymn writers in the past as they have sensed that that old writer was exactly on the ball when he said, there is something here that makes you feel that the airplane that's been going along the tarmac at a hundred miles an hour or whatever, the jumbo jet of Romans 1 to 7 with all its monumental argumentation that the wheels are up and the gospel is soaring. And now, as it were, Paul has this panoramic view of the world, and as he soars in the triumph of the gospel, it's almost as though he's looking out all of the windows and challenging everything in the universe to come and address itself to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ and see if there is anything in the universe that can dislocate him from the love of God in Jesus Christ. There is an exhilaration about these verses. And actually, there needs to be, because although so often we think that at this point the Apostle Paul has reached the apex, the climax of Romans, believe me, he has just reached the most significant base camp. And I suspect one of the reasons he is soaring in this way he is so exuberant about the gospel, is because he is conscious that where he is about to ascend in the chapters that follow bring him into territory that no one dare go without a plentiful supply of oxygen. And while we often think that these verses bring us as high as the apostle Paul could possibly go, the real truth of the matter is when he gets to the end of chapter 11, he goes even higher. And so there is a sense in which Paul is, as it were, saying to the Roman Christians, they don't know what's coming, he knows what's coming. Dear brothers and sisters, we need to pause and to sing here. We need to have a worship service here, because there is an enormous climb into the stratosphere of the mystery of God's purposes and the immensity of His glory about to dawn upon us. So, almost in a pilgrim's progress way, although Bunyan must have got the idea from the Apostle Paul and not the other way round. it's as though he gathers us together so that we may bathe and triumph in the gospel and share with him this great conviction. In verse 38, I am Sure, I am persuaded. In the light of all this, and perhaps that's a better way to translate it that older way, that sense that Paul is not looking within himself to say, Now. I have worked up deep convictions. I have strong opinions about this. There's all the difference in the world between having strong opinions about the gospel and being persuaded by the gospel that there is nothing in all creation that can ever separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And I said last time, I believe this is the reason why Paul spends a disproportionate amount of time on the fourth of these questions he's asking. Question number one in verse 31, who is against us? Number two in verse 33, who can bring any charge against God's elect? Question number three in verse 34, who is to condemn? But when he comes to the question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? He takes more time to answer that question than he took to answer all the three first questions together, because he realizes it's possible to be clear about the gospel in your mind, and not deeply persuaded in your heart. And indeed, if the truth of the matter were known, so much pastoral ministry is taken up with exactly that people who have some understanding of the gospel, but who do not taste this assurance that nothing can ever separate them from the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's something of which we need to be persuaded. In other words, it's not something we can just work out and our own intellectual steam That's a great mistake, and many Christians make it. As long as I have a solid understanding of the gospel, all is well. My dear friends, you can have a solid understanding of the gospel and have no assurance of salvation whatsoever. You need to be inwardly persuaded by the power of the gospel, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And I think most of us would have to admit, by the testimony of the unheroic Christian lives that we lead, by the cowardice that so often marks our Christian lives, by the fact that we are shrinking violets in an ungodly world, that one of the reasons for that is we haven't been delivered from that fear by being persuaded that nothing that can ever happen to us in this world can possibly separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And as I am certainly persuaded, one of the reasons why Paul spends so much time on this is because it is the focal point in Christians' lives of Satan's attack and has been from the beginning. Isn't that true? Isn't that what Genesis 3 is really all about, the temptation? God doesn't really love you. God set you in this garden, and he's not letting you of the fruit of any of these trees. You see what Satan is doing? He is driving a wedge into their hearts so that they will not be persuaded that they are inseparable from the love of God. And since he was so successful with our innocent parents, how much more successful and how much more easily successful he is with the mass of humanity. And so, this is a great stage Paul has reached where he says, now, I am persuaded. Now, what has persuaded him? That's the question, isn't it? Well, we might say it's his own preaching that's persuaded him. It's his own preaching of the gospel. That's what preaching of the gospel is for. It's not to fill our heads with knowledge because knowledge on its own puffs up. It's to persuade us as the Holy Spirit takes the exposition of the word to persuade us inwardly in a way no man or woman could ever persuade us inwardly. I couldn't persuade you to walk out of the church or walk into the church this evening. I don't have those powers. Not a single word that comes from my mouth in and of itself can persuade you that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So why do I take so many words? Because… We ourselves are persuaded that it's by His Word that He persuades us of His love and that we cannot be separated from it. And so it dawns upon us in this marvelous secrecy. Although we are in a public arena, nobody else in this room has a single idea what's going on in your mind at the moment, on the assumption something is going on in your mind at the moment and you've not tuned out completely. But the Spirit knows. And as we sit, as you and I sit under the ministry of the Word, and let me emphasize, I sit under this ministry as much as anybody else in the room. There's nobody else in the room preaching at the moment under whose ministry I can sit. We are all together sitting under this ministry, and God, unknown to you, totally unknown to you, God is impressing these truths upon my soul to persuade me of the inseparability of my life from his love, as in secret ways, known only to you, He's getting down deeper than anyone could get down. You can't go to a psychotherapist who will do this for you. What psychotherapist could persuade you so that you would walk out of his or her room saying, nothing in all creation can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus? It's not in mortal power to do that, but it's in God's power to do it. And Paul, who had every reason under the sun to fall victim to Satan's wiles, saying to him, how can a murderer like you possibly be loved by God? Had come to this amazing persuasion, this multiple murderer, this man who really was the chief of sinners because he had it, humanly speaking, in his power to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, and he meant to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. And now he's saying, wonder of wonders, my dear friends, if he can say this, you can say this. If he can say this, by God's grace, you can say this. I am persuaded that there is no power, and he lists the powers that are able to separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And you see how he lists them. You notice that in verse 38. I don't think we need to go into the details, although that's interesting enough in itself. I don't think the apostle Paul was pausing too long in the details, but you see what he's doing. It's as though he's going to every corner and crevice in the cosmos and saying, and that can't separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so you notice how he says here in verse 38, I'm sure that neither death nor life, not even death that breaks my heart, that tears my loved ones away from me, that makes me feel years, decades after they've been taken out of this world, that makes me feel keenly that I still miss them and inwardly ache to see them again. That can't separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ, nor can anything that happens in life Some of us are more afraid of life than we are of death. Isn't that the truth? We're certainly far more anxious about it. What if? What if? What if? What if? No what-ifs, says Paul, can never separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And, And then he moves beyond. He moves, as it were, into the next level, and he says, neither on the one hand can angels do it Nor can rulers. Perhaps he's thinking here about holy angels. Remember how he says to the Galatians, if an angel from heaven comes and tells you another gospel, let that angel be anathema, let him be accursed. He says it isn't in the power of a single angel. Not a single angel can go to God and say, look at Paul. Look at Paul. Look at what he's been. Not a single angel could go to the Father. I don't know what angels' personalities and temperaments are like. I hope they're not a total expression of what Christians' personalities are like, because you get Christians like this who are always, as we used to say, as we boys, they clipe on you. They're clipers. Now, if anything goes wrong, they're always telling the minister, Do you know what so and so is doing? You have no idea how much I know about you. But it's safe. <laughs> there are no clipping angels. Can never say to the Father, Father, I think you've overlooked something here. Look at what she's up to, look at her sins, look at this catalogue. Or, on the other hand, the demons of hell that seek to destroy our trust in Jesus Christ and cloud our vision of His glory, they cannot separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, nor things present, nor things to come. Some of us will go through dark days Some of us are going through dark days, things present, things to come. They cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, nor powers, no power. There's no dynamic in the universe that has the power to to separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ, nor height, nor depth. Scholars are not very sure what he's speaking about here. Is is he just saying there's nothing up there, and there's nothing down here, and there's nothing in between that has the power to sever me from Christ's love? No, it's as though he's saying you know, some people do this. You know, youngsters have this kind of language. They, they rabbit on about something, and then they say, etc., etc., or, and the stuff, and you have no idea what they're talking about. Paul says, and nothing, if there's anything else, if I've missed out anything else. Let me just make it plain. For those who are in Christ Jesus, nothing in all creation can ever separate them from the love of God. Despite the fact And this, it seems to me, is the point of what's happening here. Remember, last time I pointed out that in verse 35, Paul asks the question, who can separate me from the love of God? And then he answers that question not by giving us who, but by giving us what. Because who uses what? and now he's getting nearer to the who. He has in his mind here all the sinister powers of darkness and hell that know they cannot separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, but do everything they possibly can to make us feel that we can be separated from it. That's the problem, really, isn't it? it? Up here, we know The gospel says you can't be separated down here. We have all kinds of conflicting emotions, and the devil plays on that, seeks to destroy that persuasion, that strong confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. It's maybe just as well that time is passing because the great illustration of this in the Bible is Job, isn't it? I don't know why it is that so many people have thought the book of Job is basically trying to solve the problem of evil, because the book itself tells us what it's about. It's about a righteous man whom Satan seeks to destroy and to unpersuade of the love of God. That's what the whole book is about. And the prologue to the book tells us that. There is this righteous man, and Satan says, that man does not trust you simply because you are a gracious God. He trusts you for what you can get out of it. And God says to Satan, well, let's see whether that's really true. Have at him and he has at him. And there are points in the book of Job, I'm going to be speaking about Job on Wednesday, so I don't need to give away all the secrets of the book of Job, but there are points in the book of Job where Job, as Calvin says, is almost driven to madness by despair. And what's the despair about? It's simple. The despair is God doesn't really love him and that's, what he's, that's really what his friends are saying to him. You've sinned, and God is punishing you. See it, man. See it. And there are moments when Job cries out in anguish and says, I have no idea what the meaning of this is, but that is not the meaning. And there are points in the book of Job where he almost gets it. He almost gets it. And what Satan is seeking to do just as he did in the Garden of Eden, is to dislodge this man from his sense that his all-trustworthy God is a God from whose love nothing can ever separate him. And I don't know if there is anything in all the world in the Christian life that is more important than that that I should be sure. Do you notice as Paul ends this passage, he tells us how to be sure. Look at the way he ends the passage. He actually ends this passage with language that's reminiscent of what he had said in chapter 5 verse 11, chapter 5 verse 21, chapter 6 verse 23, and chapter 7 verse 25. And now it all becomes clear. The reason we can be sure as Christians that we will never be separated from the love of God the Father is because through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can be sure that we can never be separated from the love of Jesus Christ. You notice how he combines these two things together. He doesn't just say You see, this isn't just a a general theistic statement, I know God is love, and I'll never be separated from God's love. No, this is a specifically gospel statement. The reason you know you'll never be separated from the love of God is a reason that's to be found in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's exactly what David Lawton was teaching the children that in the love of Jesus Christ we are held in a grip from which no man can pluck us. But, Jesus adds, the hand of Jesus Christ from which His sheep can never be plucked is itself held in the hand of His heavenly Father. There is in the gospel no double jeopardy, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. There is no double jeopardy, but there is double safety in Jesus Christ, because God will no more let go of those He loves in Jesus Christ than he will let go of Jesus Christ, because it's only in Jesus Christ that he loves me. And so, if I can put it this way, he has staked his love for his Son on his love for those for whom his Son has died. It's what George Wade Robertson teaches us to sing, isn't it? Loved with everlasting love, led by grace that love to know. Gracious spirit from above, thou hast taught me, it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace, oh, this transport all divine. In a love which cannot cease, I am his and he is mine. Or better, much better actually, Augustus Montague, Top Lady, a debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do, my Saviour's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete his promises, yes and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Things future nor things that are now, Romans 8, nor all things below or above can make him his purpose forego or sever my soul from his love my name from the palms of His hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on His heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, 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 I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified Spirit in heaven. Doesn't that persuade you? Because if this doesn't, there isn't anything that can enable you to say, I am sure. And it is because we are sure that we are able to take this covenant tonight and give ourselves without reservation to Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You with all our hearts that You are a God who loves us so much. Some of us are fathers and mothers who have cradled our sick children in our arms and drawn them to ourselves to give them security, to bless them. We come to you tonight because you are a God who, as a father, pities his children, and you have shown us amazing love. And we pray as we are persuaded that nothing can ever separate us from Your love in Jesus Christ, that anchored in that grace, secure in Your double grip in Christ, to pray that You will have us all, and that You will do with us as You please, and that we may become a joy to You, and a blessing to one another. So hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.